Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. In 1915, a Brooklynite named Francis Morrell put pen to paper and wrote a brief genealogy of old Williamsburg. The Williamsburg he was describing was in the mid-19th century in what was then a tiny and charming rural enclave. When Morrell completed this genealogy in 1915, the Williamsburg that he had described had essentially disappeared. And the neighborhood was now teeming with industry. It was incredibly densely populated. Basically, it was a symbol of urban life in the United States. Why do the musings of this one Brooklynite matter? In this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we'll consider this short and unpublished manuscript written by an amateur historian and the important details it reveals about the ways Americans have understood their own history and genealogy. There is a lost art here of placing the person um, and not only describing the um, sort of the municipal or the personal buildings that, uh, you know, residential buildings around, but actually placing them in nature, right? Mm -hmm. And thinking back of a time when natural landmarks um, sort of determined where you were as much as, you know, a street corner, right? Here's how he describes Mr. Ellison, which this tripped me out. And I could not stop saying this phrase for the rest of our discovery of this document. Ellison was a, quote, little, withered, old, dried up mulatto. There's this kind of racialized nostalgia going on here. Francis Morrell was not the only Williamsburg resident who took the time to reflect on the rapid changes taking place in his neighborhood. We see the landscape of that neighborhood changed once again and a new generation of people ready to um, uh, think deeply about the constant change they see taking place there. When I uh, went to live in Williamsburg, we had a place that was called the Monaco Place and it was so strictly Jewish that everything was kosher. And you had to push cart markets outside where the Jewish people sold you everything and the pickles in the barrels and the tomatoes pickled in a barrel. You go there today, that's non-existent. Today what you have is la bodega, la cuala, la de cuamo, la de tuado. Julie, for our regular listeners, they know that our second segment is always a close reading of a document. And we're doing something a little bit different today in this episode, where in the first segment, it is also about the document, but in a different way, right? Yeah, we're going to shape the whole episode around what might seem like a small or even an inconsequential um, little bit of manuscript that we found in the collection. It's so small that it doesn't even have its own box. It's just one folder. Mm-hmm. And it's a little handwritten, unpublished manuscript written by a man named Francis Morell. He completed it in 1915, close to the end of his life. But it's this great window into questions about how we have understood and how Americans have written their own histories over time. Right. And I think this is important because a lot of people, when they come across a historical text or a history book, 
we don't really think, and people would think this is a little bit meta, but we don't really think about a history book as a piece of literature or as a document that is created itself, right? Yep. We think of history as record, a history book is recording something of the past, um, but we don't think of the history book itself as a record of its own past. We, you know, historians are known for working with primary sources and something that I think it's, it's hard for us to, to many, for many people to remember is that a monograph, a, te- a, a textbook, a, a, um, a piece of historical right. writing is both a secondary source, but if you s- sort of flip the coin, it's a primary That's source right. of about the, the time that it's being written. That it was written and it, and it was published. And a great way to think about this is even just looking at, you know, for example, textbooks um, in the early 20th century that reflect the kind of racial in- the inequality that existed right. in the United right. States, right. portrayals of the Civil War, right. portrayals of Reconstruction are almost shocking in their racism when we read them today but these were the 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 textbooks right. um, of American life a century ago and it explains why the historical interpretations that we have are so contested right. are always being revised and why people dedicate their whole careers and lives to a particular period of the past that is constantly being reexamined and that the kind of reexamination that happens is so dependent on who is doing the examination, right. when they're doing it, where they're doing it, their own kind of social context. And this text, this monograph that we're going to look at functions in that way. It, it's both about the past and it is about the time when it is itself is being written. This is the neat thing about historical texts like this is that they are reflective of two periods. In the case of Francis Morrell, we're looking at something that was published in 1915. So if we're looking at it with that sort of cap on it as its as, as its own primary source, it tells us a lot about 1915. That's right. But Morrell is also recording incredible detail, detail that uh, in many ways would have been lost about the period and that he is studying. Right. And that period right. is mid-19th century Williamsburg. And he's looking at a period that is so vastly different from the Williamsburg that he looks in today with, um, you know, with a hope and a sense of reclaiming and preserving something that he sees that is rapidly, um, rapidly disappearing. And, you know, this is interesting because I think when people think of change and urban change, or let's use the G word, gender gentrification in Brooklyn, one of the first neighborhoods that come to mind is Williamsburg. And what's interesting is that Williamsburg has been undergoing change for well over a century, one and a half, we can say over two centuries. And for our non-local listeners, I just want to give them a sense of what Williamsburg is like today. Williamsburg today is seen, as you say, as sort of ground zero of gentrification, of a rapid transformation in its economy and its culture. Um, it is maybe in some ways the home of what people might know as the hipster. Yes. Um, um, the ground zero for the hipster. It's Lena Dunham's girls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Although for the purists, we have to be clear that that is Greenpoint. <laughs> okay. All right. Very well. Very that well. in Lena Dunham's girls' world, um, 
Greenpoint was gentrifying, whereas Williamsburg right. had already true, kind true. of become. They went to a lot of parties in Williamsburg. They did. And then, yeah. you know, Bushwick and yeah, other places yeah. that these are all sort of on the outskirts and the periphery right, of Williamsburg. Right. But Williamsburg was traditionally a place of high industry in the 20th century. Some of the sort of major heavy industries of Brooklyn history, especially sugar and oil, um, had their headquarters, their production headquarters on the waterfront. Right. These were traditionally working class uh, communities. Many immigrants called Williamsburg home. And we start to see this change um, in the 1980s um, when you see more and more artists moving into the neighborhood as industries move out, um, creative class moves in. Taking advantage of vacated um, factory buildings, large loft style buildings, the kind of spaces that are very friendly to artists. The particular nature of zoning laws there made this particularly possible, um, made it possible for a new build. There's an enormous amount of construction continuing to go on in Williamsburg today that has been um, uh, proceeding at an unbelievable pace for the past 10 years. So I think, you know, it, it is... An incredible! It is a great example of an urban dense space that has turned over in meaning over and over over the course of the twentieth and twenty first century. And I think that's interesting. I think if you were to talk to maybe a longtime resident of Williamsburg today um, and ask them to reflect on what Williamsburg was like in the nineteen fifties or nineteen sixties, you would you would get a kind of wistful of what the neighborhood was like with these families and, you know, neighborhood parks. Stoop culture. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yep. Um and a century ago, that's what Francis Morell Someone was else doing. was doing yeah. that. And Francis, he was reflecting Francis about Morel, you know, exactly. like the, the century before. Exactly. So who was let's let's tell folks why um Francis Morell. He's he's important not just because he left this monograph, um, but he, he really comes from an interesting a family that would privilege him to these kinds of insights. He's, you know, um old stock Williamsburg. So his family actually can trace um um its origins back to the very early years of Williamsburg. And actually just an aside here, because it may be just important for context for people to understand, is that Williamsburg today is a neighborhood in Brooklyn. But in the period that he's writing about, it's actually its own separate city mm-hmm, from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. It eventually becomes annexed into Brooklyn. And then before that, it was even its own separate village that was part of the separate town um, called Bushwick. So it, in a lot of ways, is separate from Brooklyn in the time that he's writing about. And this is, I think, important context to understand when we're thinking about him. So actually, I think his grandfather was one of the one of the early founders of yes. the village of Williamsburg. Yes. Thomas, Thomas Morrell, and another gentleman named Richard Woodhull. So he is um, Francis, back to Francis Morrell, is born in 1844. Um, and so in describing the 1850s, he's doing this through the lens of his childhood mm-hmm. at the end of his life. He's a lifelong Williamsburger. And he basically watches that area transform not only from its own city to a part of another city to a part of New York, but also from this incredibly small and according to him very charming um, small natural rural enclave to a, a booming place um, of unbelievable den- density and right. unbelievable industry by right. the end of his life. And and not only were these changes happening um, during his early childhood, I think if we back up just a little bit to give people a sense of Williamsburg's growth, it was incorporated as a village in 1827 as part of the town of Bushwick. 
And by 1829, it had a post office, about 150 residences, stores, taverns, rope walks, a distillery, a slaughterhouse, butchers, um, a church, uh, both a Dutch Reformed church and a Methodist Episcopal church. The population was just over 1,000, and it included about 70 people of African descent. And so this is 1829. That's mm-hmm. two years after the end of slavery in New York State. So um, likely at this point, many of those African-Americans would have already been free, but certainly a handful of them would have been recently freed um, by that state law. And this is around the time of people who are following this kind of early market revolution that the United States is experiencing, the advent of transportation in the form of the steamboat. And so you have in the 1830s, with the help of additional ferries, accelerating the rapid growth of Williamsburg, which, as Julie described in terms of the the geography, is right there on the waterfront. Other growth is taking place at this time as well. Um, Immigration is kicking up, and a lot of people might be familiar with the fact that Williamsburg in the um, late 19th century becomes really a a central home to German breweries. You know, there were dozens of breweries in the neighborhood of Williamsburg at that time. And so what we're seeing is actually a very diverse group of people who are living in Williamsburg. As early as the mid-19th century, you have, you know, German brewers and laborers you have a growing community of Mm African-Americans who are taking advantage of the relatively inexpensive land prices in Williamsburg, which is still kind of the outskirts at this time, and establishing communities there. Um, You know, we often associate black um, land ownership in Brooklyn with Weeksville, but here closer to the water, actually we have found evidence of families like the Hodges family who um, are building up um, their own property um, in the 1840s and establishing their own businesses Mm -hmm, in Williamsburg mm -hmm, at the time. mm -hmm. And in 1841, the African school in Williamsburg is opened, uh, and this is after the village school uh, refused to matriculate the students of color who were there. And so this colored school, number three, as it became known, was led by William Hodges as its first teacher and principal, the same gentleman that Julie just mentioned. I do think this is really important for us to understand when we look back at um, Morel's manuscript that he does portray it as this kind of sleepy, um, you know, quiet place of these sort of colorful characters. But that shouldn't let us forget that Williamsburg is booming, actually, in the 1850s. A lot of change is going on. He actually is born into change, you know. And so there's a tinge of nostalgia um, in everything that Morel is describing about this period, that does kind of um, obscure yeah. the rapid change yeah. that's already taking place in yeah. Williamsburg in, yeah. the, in the 1850s. I mean, one gets the sense, as as we'll get into his document or get into his recollections of Williamsburg, that the childhood lens of that from which he's viewing or remembering some of this is very much obscuring this change that's happening outside. And and maybe, you know, it's interesting, he's he's writing this at the same time that another kind of change is happening in Williamsburg. You know, a lot of times when people do nostalgia or they write nostalgically, it is in kind of response to the changes that they're witnessing in their own time, kind of as a rejection or a counter narrative. Um, and I wonder uh, if that was what was happening to morale as well. It's really interesting to look at the past through the lens of childhood. Yes. Right? I mean, 
you know, there's a way in which we have to take a lot of it with a grain of salt, but it also provides a kind of an intimacy of detail that we perhaps don't get from adult recollections. And then even bringing that into looking at the entirety of his life cycle and then what it means to reflect on your childhood at the end of your life creates this kind of fascinating glimpse into this period and the way that a child might look at a moment during really rapid growth. While the tone of Morel's tr- manuscript, of course, feels kind of detached and it's like he's clearly like playing the role of a historian, you get these glimpses of um, these these moments of his childhood that are, I think, my favorite part about the yes. manuscript. One of my one of these is when he's talking about a neighbor, a man named Richard Laycraft, and his um, relationship with a 19th century uh, painter um, named John O'Brien Inman. And he describes the house of the Laycraft family. He says this house was a veritable museum, curiosities from um, foreign lands, Indian relics, um, rare coins, and um, many valuable paintings. And then he says, um, as I was an especial favorite of Mrs. L, I was often allowed to play with the Indian war clubs and Chinese idols taken from their um, care for my entertainment. I mean, I feel like we all have these kind of wild childhood memories yeah, like Yeah, you this. know, you can't help but smile. I mean, of course, the cynic in me is like, what Native American artifacts are you playing with? But you can't, you really can't help but smile at, there is an innocent tone in his, you know, Mrs. L. And you said it was like, a lot of it is like a detached, and then this happened, and then there was this, and then this, this right. was built. Like he but, rolls through the yeah. genealogy right, of the Laycraft right, family before right, we get this just right. l- tiny yeah, little detail, yeah. you know? And I think this personalizes it in a way that I think is important to understand how he was reconstructing the past. I think your point about Native Americans and your Chinese idols is is well taken yeah. because there's also something that te- that tells us a great deal um, about the way that non-Western cultures were viewed and kind of fetishized and the way that their goods were kind of claimed as art relics um, um, for a child's, you know, a little, you know, Williamsburg and child's play. You know, that is, I think... <laughs> uniquely reflective of the early 20th century you know i mean there is no reflection of um the the meaning of that there is um very little about you know how those things were um were procured and what might be problematic about that so i think it's like it's a great reminder that embedded in these stories are um, evidence about the nature of race relations at the time, about the way that um, non-Western, non-European, non-white communities um, were in relationship to sort of a predominant white culture, especially through the eyes of this kind of established um, white family. The other thing that stands out to me about the manuscript is just the enormous amount of detail about the built environment of the time, which um, to Morel um, in 1915 um, was largely lost and would have been unrecognizable to his fellow neighborhoods in sort of early 20th century Williamsburg. One of my favorite parts is when he describes Bushwick Creek and such unbelievable detail, the hills, the beaches along the edge, the different tributaries, um, how long they were, and then reminds us, of course, that all of this is gone, which has been replaced by largely by domino, domino sugar facilities. Um, there's 
it's like taking a walking tour of a place that mm-hmm. no longer exists, mm-hmm. you know? There are even drawings, right? right? So there is this one place he describes called the Fountain Inn facing the East River at Williamsburg, south of Grand Street. And he describes it by saying, possibly this building received its name from the, fa- from the old Fountain family. It was the principal meeting place of the villagers and was the center of all activities, political or otherwise. It stood somewhere about south first. To your point, you know, there is this, there's almost three things intersecting in this this document. There's a history, there's this genealogy, and there's geography, right? And I really like this because I do feel in the late 20th century, early 21st century among historians of something called the spatial turn, mm-hmm. and it's now that people mm-hmm. are paying attention to space, there was this kind of history disconnected almost in abstract. Reading it was really refreshing because you, not only do you feel like you're walking through uh, Williamsburg, but you're walking through Williamsburg, literally the tree is the family tree, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's this sense of connectedness mm-hmm. um, that you, you get emerging out of his descriptions of these various places. Yeah, it really actually has pushed me to think a lot about the meaning of genealogy, because I think you're right. I mean, there is a lost art here of placing the person um, and not only describing the um, sort of the municipal or the personal buildings that, um, you know, residential buildings around, but actually placing them in nature, right? Mm-hmm. And thinking back of a time when natural landmarks um, sort of determined where you were as much as, you know, a street corner, right? But... It, you know, it's important to remember that Morell is not a historian, right? right? I mean, I think what the spatial turn did that you describe that happened in the, you know, late 20th and early 21st mm-hmm. century is it brought back place but made larger arguments about the significance mm-hmm. of place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the important thing to understand about what a lot of genealogists are doing in the late 19th and early 20th century is it's, it's not necessarily about making a sort of asserting these large arguments based on evidence the way that historians do. It's about um, recovery of a lost past, an unbelievable documentation of the things that are currently being lost, which is an important work and provides important evidence for later historians. But it isn't necessarily asserting the arguments the way that um, that we historians do today. Right, right. He's not making an explicit argument about development. He's not making an explicit argument about change over time or about what the forces are that that make change over time, uh, which is what I think would be the primary occupation of a professionally trained historian. What's interesting is I think historians, while um, at the time that Morell was working, historians themselves were in the process of figuring out what it is historians do. That's right. Um, so the American Historical Association was founded in 1884, which is a good, you know, 30 years uh, so before this is being written. But in that 30-year period, you have this, this, this work being done by members of the association to kind of codify and, um, you know, say this is what history is. And Morel is a kind of, um, I don't want to say he himself is becoming an artifact of the past, yeah. but he very much, he he's very much of the generation before. 
So while Morel himself may not be sort of making these professional arguments, what he is doing is he is providing invaluable um, research and valuable observations and val- valuable documentation that historians of today can then take and leverage towards their arguments about Williamsburg's past or New York's past or America's past, whether they're looking at the mid-19th century are whether they're looking at 1915 in the period in which Morell himself was writing. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush and Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. When Zahir and I first opened the folder to the Morel collection, we were greeted with um, something of a, a surprise. I think we saw a set of documents that we were expecting to, some handwritten, some typed. But when we picked up the, um, the, the first page, um, wow. So the way that this document or manuscript seems to go is that there is a, a good portion of it that is... The thing unto itself. The final draft. Yeah, it's like the final draft where he's describing the kind of history of the families and where they lived and the businesses that opened up and what streets and how this changed the built environment and the creek went and all this stuff. It's his narrative. It's his narrative. And then there are these portraits Aside from that, these one to two page portraits of different individuals. And I think that we saw names like uh, Honey in the Comb. Happy Jack. Happy Jack. Old Jarvis. Uh, But there was one that stood out to us. And to use the language that is written in is Nigga Ellison. Now... This is this is an interesting thing here because and I think this is an you know, I, I always wonder how historians treat this as everyone or many people know. Uh, there is a lot of controversy around this word, rightfully so, because of its origins, because of how it's been used historically. Some people say it's been reclaimed or reappropriated, depending on the context, who gets to say it. And this is not an unresolved thing. No. Um, I'm fine saying it in its historical context. Francis Morrell was not listening to Jay-Z and Kanye West. Okay, He was when, not, right. He was not. He was not right? reclaiming. There was, was no, yeah. there was no reclaiming <laughs> politics <point>. of, you <laughs> right. know. Yeah, he is not chilling with the folks right. when he is talking about <laughs> Mr. Ellison. I will for now on say Mr. Ellison. So this gentleman that he is describing is described as he was the official dog catcher of the city of Williamsburg and probably has occupied the same status for the villagers. And he goes on to describe, you know, Mr. Ellison carried around a club uh, that he pretty much would he'd, he'd murder he'd, dogs. He'd, he'd beat these dogs. <laughs> like, he would, I mean, like we. I mean, we're not laughing because this is not funny about cruelty to animals. But he's he would be he would beat these dogs to death. He appeared to have had a very specific club with a piece of sharp yeah, iron yeah. Um, on the end of it, and his job as um, in some places he's called dog catcher, and in other places he's called right, dog killer. Right. Was actually just to kill stray dogs if they weren't claimed. Right. So I. You you know, so, uh, of course, finding this document written and titling and calling Mr. Ellison what uh, Morell called Ellison was jarring. 
But I think we thought it was an anomaly in the documents. We thought it was just like a one thing. Uh, and we're going to come back to this. But reading the reason why we knew this wasn't a one thing, because here's how he describes Mr. Ellison, yeah. which this tripped me out. And I could not stop saying this phrase for the rest of our discovery of this document. Ellison was a, quote, little, withered, old, dried up mulatto. Let's just, before we get to mulatto, let's just deal with the fact that he called this man little. And if that wasn't bad enough, he called him little and withered. And, if and that dried did, up. And dried Don't up. Don't forget like, about that. Yeah, like little, withered, old, dried up. As you said, this was not, as we came to peel through the pages, this was not an anomaly. Um, yeah. There were, and what I think is fascinating is that there are just as many of these little biographical treatments of black people yeah. as there are of white people. Yes. There's clearly a preoccupation yeah. with it. And I think what's key here is this focus on appearance, um, on describing the particularities of race in another in another profile of a man named um, Happy Jack, who actually is described, I think, in a little bit more positive light than Ellison is. Well, he is happy I mean, after all. He was really, <laughs> he was really brutal to Ellison. Um, you know, he it, happy flourished around Williamsburg, um, and then he says um, he was black very black indeed, of middle age. I mean, fat and comfortable looking. There's this, um, like, this, like, commitment to this yeah. detailed description yeah. of physicality that you do not see with white people anywhere in this so, manuscript. So, you know, what's really interesting is that this is the kind of thing I would expect some child growing up on a plantation uh, yes. to write. I almost yes. get the feeling of... of old Remus tale you know like yes. that that like there's this kind of racialized nostalgia going on here I'm happy jack this old dried up mulatto dog catcher Zahir uh, I don't think that's an accident because it is during the early 20th century that these kind of um, sort of nost again nostalgic stereotypes of the old south and of relations between black and white people um, are resurfaced as part of this moment of reunion that's right um, in the in the generations after the civil war and actually take on new nationalized scope and nationalized meaning so if you look in like newspaper articles from northern newspapers in the 1910s these if you look at advertising campaigns like Aunt Jemima yeah, you know yeah. these Uncle Ben exactly yeah, yeah. these tropes become national symbols of yeah. Americanism and it's not surprising at all that this guy Morel is looking back at his childhood through the lens of this moment of popular culture of racialized popular culture and writing those stereotypes into his own childhood. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget that in February of 1915, the year that Morel wrote this, Birth of a Nation premiered, and Birth of the Nation, Birth of a Nation, was for those who are unaware, is on the one hand a remarkable technical advancement in terms of what film and sound would be. It is very much the birth of modern Hollywood, but on the other hand. It is very much the the valorization of this lost cause history that Julie just described, where the Civil War is recast as a conflict between brothers, you know, a family squabble, and one that the South uh, experienced tyranny 
under Reconstruction and the quote-unquote redemption of the South is uh, accomplished by subjugating newly freed Black people. And the portrayal of those Black people, and again, this is a visual medium, but it's a silent film, which is making which makes the visuals of it all the more yeah, powerful, yeah. gets back to those themes of Black physicality that we were talking yeah, about. Um, yeah. a, a emphasis on dark skin, on like the sort of the in, in, in inferiority of intellect of black people of their sort of dangerous intentions their threat to community but then also um, this kind of infantilization um, of black people and that this could the all of these stereotypes could exist in sort of one um, one archetype um, of black people in the in the 20th century you know I want to come back to something that you said that this was nationalized you know I I said reading this I felt like I was reading the memoir of a child growing up on a plantation. And, you know, this is something that a lot of people feel that um, Brooklyn was immune to, Mm -hmm. that the North was immune Mm -hmm. to, and certainly Brooklyn was immune to. But we know that there was a history of slavery in Brooklyn, even though New York State had emancipation a good 25 or so years before the 13th Amendment, making it illegal for the country, that doesn't mean that the social relations had been worked out, you know, from slavery. Right. Well, and and also, I mean, taking it back to that question of like looking at the mid 19th century and then looking at 1915, um, Brooklynites like Morrell had to grapple with the history of slavery um, that is so central to understanding Brooklyn. So if you're a historian of Brooklyn, you can't get around Mm -hmm. the fact that slavery existed in the past. But that portrayal of slavery or that portrayal of African-Americans who lived in Brooklyn um, is, again, tinged through that sort of redemption and reunion narrative that is so central by 1915. So in 1915, Morell is looking back on race relations, but is re- what he tells us about race relations in 19th century Brooklyn is so much more about the period in which he lives than the actuality yeah. of experience yeah. in 1850 yeah. or 1820 or earlier right. than that. right. But I want to look and read in between the lines here and see if we can find some glimmers of evidence or glimmers of truth that we can use with our interpretive skills to actually better understand black life in Williamsburg in the 19th century. Yeah, because even though he has very, to put it euphemistically, colorful names for these individuals that he's profiling, what's interesting is that they each seem to uh, represent a kind of self-sufficiency in Williamsburg, whether it's Mr. Ellison, the dog catcher. Later on, he describes Mr. Ellison as someone who would run the flag up uh, at the city hall. There's old Jarvis, who was a woodcutter and would provide services to the families. These are people who are kind of have their own independence, kind of, right? He portrays them as servile, but if you read between the lines, they're actually small business owners. Yes, yes. Um, they're entrepreneurs. Um, in the case of Happy Jack, I was struck by the fact that, you know, they said he was fat and comfortable looking. But then later, we learned that he's got a house, and it's a nicely kept house, and he has his own wagon um, It's that he uses to, you know, transport things for people. Um, all the time, he was um, thrifty, and it was re- he was reputed to have um, amassed um, a considerable money. And I mean, this makes me this brings me back to the Hodges family. Yes. Um, in the 1840s, moving here, buying land along the waterfront, establishing communities, perhaps 
some of these people sent their children to the Hodges um, Collard mm-hmm. School. Mm-hmm. You know, um, these are things that we want to just kind of poke at the and at the racism within this and see what kinds of details that we can actually glimpse of Black civic culture. Francis Morell was not the only Williamsburg resident who took the time to reflect on the rapid changes taking place in his neighborhood. And in that vein, this Voices of Brooklyn will feature a narrator, Elizabeth Guanel, and this is from the Puerto Rican Oral History Project Records collection. This was a collection of oral histories that were recorded between 1973 and 1975. This is actually our first oral history collection here at Brooklyn Historical Society. This collection featured oral histories narrated by those in the Puerto Rican community of Brooklyn who arrived in the early half of the 20th century. And her family came really early. Yeah, it says. Um, 1915, Mm -hmm. um, uh, which is actually incidentally nine years before she was even born. So they were among some of the first families settling, Puerto Rican families settling in Brooklyn. Yeah, and I mean, of course, 1915 is like this magic number for this episode because this is the year that Francis Morell is writing his history of Williamsburg. Oh, that's really remarkable to think about these two worlds, which seem so different, colliding. Huh. Yeah, it adds another layer of context to the changes that Francis Morell is witnessing, right? Like I think in the last segment we talked primarily about the the black white context because of his descriptions of black people from the 19th century. But, you know, this is after, you know, the United States has essentially taken over Puerto Rico after the Spanish-American War and and now you have the arrival of significant waves of migrants coming in during this time. So this would have been another cultural uh, shock, maybe, for Francis Morell as he's thinking about his Williamsburg. And then as families like the Guanils set roots in Williamsburg and establish their own institutions, their own businesses, um, we see the landscape of that neighborhood changed once again and a new generation of people ready to um, uh, think deeply about the constant change they see taking place there. That's right. And what's interesting is even as different as Elizabeth Guanil and Frances Morell may have been in terms of their histories and circumstances, their memories and history of the neighborhood follow a pattern, right? They follow a somewhat similar pattern. So in this first clip, um, and keep in mind that this is recorded in 1974 mm-hmm. about the Williamsburg that Elizabeth Guanil is growing up in in the 1930s. Similar right? to Morel. Exactly. So there's like a 40-year difference here where she is describing her neighbors and the institutions that she grew up around. What other Puerto Rican families or people did you know in Brooklyn during this t- period? Oh, I, I'm not, in fact, I, know, I still know them because we all happened to move out here. I know Mr. Cecilio Rivera, who was the grocer, uh, Roberto Tejada, um, uh, the people that actually, you know, told us about Brentwood, uh, his name was Herena, I mean by the name of Herena. He still lives out here unless he's moved to Portugal. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Tehran, who still live out here, Mr. and Mrs. Francisco Tejada. We all, we're still neighbors here. 
So a little bit of context here. Um, when Elizabeth talks about Brentwood, she's referring to her and her family's move to Brentwood, Long Island um, in the 1940s. And so this is after she goes to college and after she gets married. Now, what, what I found interesting, and, and this, this is similar to what we're talking about, like how you remember what you remember. She names quite a few people. Um, and then she says, you know, they are, they're all still my neighbors because we all moved out here together. And so, you know, the people she's naming and remembering are the people she's still around. Well, and like Morel, she is giving a genealogy of people and the people who shape her lives, the people who perhaps shaped her childhood and continue to shape her life today, as you say. And it's a place-based yeah. genealogy yeah. At, just as it is with Morel. I love so, it. I love it. Yeah, it's really um, like, you know, and recreating of a of a place first in Williamsburg and then again um, in Brentwood, um, creating a sort of a Puerto Rican landscape. And in this next clip, we hear her recollecting even more details about the Williamsburg of the past. And how it changed. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'll tell you there's a big difference from the time that I remember Brooklyn to when I went back to it now. When I uh, went to live at Williamsburg, we had a place that was called a Monaco place, and it was so strictly Jewish that everything was kosher. And you had to push cart markets outside, where the Jewish people sold you everything, and the pickles in the barrels, and the tomatoes pickled in a barrel. You go there today, that's non-existent. Today what you have is La Bodega, La, la, la de Cuamo, La de Tuado. Uh, you have your um, dry cleaners, you have your barber shops. Everything is strictly Puerto Rican. You have your places where they sell cuchifrito, morcilla, where they sell you capurria, uh, pasteles. That all at one time when I was being raised, that was strictly Jewish, strictly Jewish. You had your matzos, you had your pickles, you had your uh, big bakery, you had your kosher foods. We are, I learned to eat salmon and lox and bagels, you know, from living on Monaco Street right off it. Mm-hmm. And the cream cheese was by the bar, they cut you a piece and they'd sell it to you. The butter was by the bar, they'd cut you a piece and sell it to you. Okay, here is the thing I think is so lovely and interesting about this clip. When we talked about Morel, we were talking about a guy whose family had deep roots in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. um, lamenting, I think, in, if reading between the lines a little bit, the loss of the like of the of his culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the transformation of his sort of social world into a much more diverse one. Mm-hmm. What I love about this quote is that the Williamsburg that Elizabeth was born in felt quite foreign to yes, her, right? Yes, um, yes. Was like a like a trip to an, another place, right? It 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 introduced her, and in fact, it um it it um immersed her. That's right. In a culture that was incredibly different from That's her right. own, and then she moved away, and now she comes back to Williamsburg, and it's Puerto Rican. Right. You know, I mean, I right. think that's so f- such a fascinating like sort of juxtaposition of the the very different nostalgias that you see displayed in something like morale and then in this interview. Yeah, that there isn't a sense of loss, um, but there is an appreciation of the difference that existed in the past. There's There's almost kind of a, the way for her, the old Williamsburg, her old Williamsburg, her, right? Her Jewish old her, Williamsburg. Her Jewish right. old Williamsburg, she saw as such a great, almost helped made her cosmopolitan, right? It, you know, introduced, she was like, I learned how to eat salmon and lox and, and the cream cheese and, you know, and the pickles. And, and I loved her description of that. And I think it, you're right. It's very different than uh, Morel's 
Morell's talking about his old Williamsburg fading, the Williamsburg that was most closely identified with his culture, whereas Elizabeth Guanell is talking about the Williamsburg that arrives is the one that's most similar to her culture. But she doesn't see it as superior or inferior to the one that was passed, yeah. just different. Yeah, that's right. And I think that if we went and we found and, and listened to an interview of somebody reflecting on Williamsburg in the 21st century, we would see these sort of similar patterns of, again, a neighborhood transformed, um, a loss of traditions. Um, the bodegas that she described are not nearly as plentiful as they were in the 1970s, replaced by new um, sort of symbols of the culture of Williamsburg today. And it's something that we can just kind of track over time throughout history. It's the holidays, and for our listeners, we're recommending two programs each coming up this month at BHS that we think you should check out. Julie, what are your two picks? Well, Zahir, as you and our regular listeners know, I've been working on an upcoming exhibition about the history of the waterfront, and it opens in January, which is super exciting. But the two events that I'm excited about are about very different aspects of Brooklyn's waterfront history. The first one, taking place on Thursday, December 7th, um, will bring Jennifer Egan, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist, back to BHS to sit down with a his- really interesting historian named Alexis Coe to talk about her new and incredibly well-received book, Manhattan Beach. Egan did a ton of research on the book here at Brooklyn Historical Society and even took some of the oral histories in our collection. Um, so that should be a really wonderful conversation. That's Thursday, December 7th. Um, the event starts at 6.30 and it's just $5 and free if you're a member. And then about a week later on Wednesday, December 13th, um, we are going to be welcoming author um, Robert Watson to talk about the history of the HMS Jersey, which was the most infamous of the many British prison ships that were moored in Wallabout Bay off the coast of Brooklyn during the Revolutionary War. It's estimated that about 11,000 people died of really unpleasant diseases during the Revolutionary War in these prison ships, and Watson is going to kind of break open that story. So that's Wednesday, December 13th. That one starts at 6.30 as well, and it's also $5 for general admission and free for members. So here, what's on your radar for the month of December? Well, on Monday, December 11th, there is a fascinating book talk by historian Lee Fought, and the book is titled Women in the World of Frederick Douglass. This is really interesting for people who aren't aware of Frederick Douglass, of course, the well-known abolitionist and social reformer of the 19th century. And this book looks at the lives of the women in his life. So Fought looks at Douglass's relationship to his mother, his grandmother, slave mistresses, his wives, Anna Murray and Helen Pitts, um, and the other women who nurtured, challenged, united with him in struggles for emancipation, the right to vote, and equality. This is Monday, December 11th. Doors open at 6 p.m. The uh, admission is $5, free for members. And by now, we hope you all have your membership so you can get into these programs for free. The next program happens on Monday, December 18th. It's called Unlocking Public Space Placemaking in Brownsville and will feature Erica Mateo and Deron Johnston from the Brownsville Community Justice Center 
and David Burney, the director of Pratt's Urban Placemaking and Management Program. This conversation will be moderated by Jeannie Belafonte of the New York Times. And if you're following her work, she's doing great stuff on change and urban change and gentrification in New York City and, and, and certainly in Brooklyn. And Brownsville is kind of at, you know, is in the eye of a lot of developers now, Brownsville and East New York. So this is a really important conversation to be had. And this takes place again Monday, December 18th. And it is also an admission of $5 free for members. So we hope that you have a full calendar and we look forward to seeing you in the month of December. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on any podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are Julie Golia and Zahir Ali. 